Amen. Awesome. Okay, so if you've been following through the series on the story, we've, we've, um, we've done creation, we've done the story of um, uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Israel forming up. Last week we got to Joseph, who had a bad day with a cougar and ended up in jail, and, uh, but it all turned out okay in the end. And so today, now we go on to this great icon moment of deliverance. And so if you're not aware of the, of the, the, the large story in Scripture... This is the moment, this is the one that literally defines, in the, in the most obvious and public sense, defines what it means to be part of God's people. It's the deliverance, it's coming out of Egypt, we've been singing about it this morning. Uh, Egypt represents so much for us, slavery, it represents bondage, it represents uh, a lack of ability to choose, it represents all sorts of things that we bow to, and God's saying, I'm prepared to get violent about this. I'm prepared to disrupt the world to save you. I'm prepared to mess things up to get my will done. And this is the first moment where we just see in this such a cataclysmic time before the nations, before the whole known world, he just says, I am Yahweh and look who I am and look what I can do. And he delivers a people out of bondage and releases them into their promised land. So this is a mega theme of scripture that then gets repeated over and over again. But for you and I, our, our often contemplated response, we may not talk about it much, is, look, I've got an idea what I'm saved from, I'm not quite sure what I've been saved to. And salvation very much is, is both sides. Repentance is, is leaving one thing and going into something else. We don't just say, sorry, God, uh, feel bad, repeat. We, we repent from one thing into another. We're saved from, from something, we're saved to another. But we're probably not too convinced or sure what that other is. And so this becomes a tension that's in our life. It's this frustrating liminality between two places. I'm stuck between Egypt and my promised land. How do I navigate this place? And so next week, we're going to talk comprehensively into that, that frustration, that wandering, and what does it feel like, and what's the win in that place? And uh, so for many of us, the freedom is a theory. Freedom is an idea, and we, we, we know it's good, and we, we feel obliged to sing about it, but we know the darkness of our own souls. We know the things that we're battling with. So freedom's not completely mine just yet. So how do I get there? It's been promised. It's available, but it's not automatic. How do we walk in that? And so if you've never really previously known freedom, it's one of those things that can be yearned for, but unable to be grasped when it actually comes. We're actually living in complete freedom now. Did you realize that? Paul is crystal clear. He says, you know, that old life, there's no, there is no obligation to that whatsoever. You can go to a counsellor all your like and you can massage and you can, you can talk about your demons and all the stuff. At the end of the day, the scriptures are really clear. You've got everything within you with Christ's spirit to overcome the whole lot of it. You think, well, that's, that's awesome, Pat. That's really simplistic, man. You don't know my, what I'm grappling with. You don't know my mother. No, you don't know my mother. <laughs> no, bless them all, Lord. I, but I, I know. You, know. you don't know my boss. You don't know my workplace. You don't know this thing, this... this anchor that's around my leg of my old life and my trauma and my pain and the injustice and all this stuff. You don't know that. Well, I, I don't need to either, but God knows it. And freedom begins on the inside and, and ultimately begins to work out on the outside. But the freedom that Jesus offers is not necessarily uh, that all those problems go away. In fact, it's, normally it's quite the opposite. They hang around and he gives us freedom right in the midst of all of that and says, I can help you to overcome and you can have victory right there. Freedom can be had. Because freedom is given in the Spirit right now. And God just wants to break you free of some of those things. He wants to break you free today from this obligation to the past that you're, that you're locked down by. It does not define who you are anymore. It doesn't have to. 
We don't need to start every conversation reminding everyone of how hard my life is and what's wrong with everything. We can remind ourselves of, of how much potential there is in my life through this powerful spirit that's within me that redefines everything. But this, this it sounds like a preacher's line, doesn't it? It's like, mate, it's good for you. It's, it's easy to preach the, the company line here. But how do we grasp this and how do we live this? Well, this story is the beginning of all that. So we're going to pick it up in Exodus 1 through to 17, 17 whole chapters if you've been following along. And in the big story, so Joseph, who we preached into last week, is now passed away. He knows they're going to be locked down in Egypt now for 400 plus years, which they've, they've now done. And, but what behind the scenes in God's big story, he's building a people. He's building like us, God's people, the, the sign of what's to come, a sign of the kingdom, the sign of what it look, looks like to live with God. And they're numbering millions now. They've come in as a dozen and they're, they're leaving as millions. But a lot's happened in this time, and I want to bring you in just to hyperlink you into the, into the history in a moment. So let's pick it up in Exodus 1, verse 6. It says, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation had died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or, we will, or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. This was legit as it is to this day. This, this fear, I've been in nations where this fear still resonates with their leaders. The fear of a popular uprising, the fear of a people's revolt. This is, it's, it's a critical point. And in human history, we've got to understand that this moment when Moses was born was at the very commencement of what historians call the, uh, it's the beginning of the Egyptian empire. This is their moment, the new Middle Kingdom. This is all brand new. And what's happened, it's a time of unprecedented expansion. It's literally only one, two, three years old. And it's a moment in history where Egypt's back. They'd been gone for a while. What had happened is that you'd had the initial kingdom of Egypt that had gone and, and everyone was fearsome and then a, a, a tribe came in called the Hyksos. And this is, a, this is a, a huge deal if you look back through the history of Egypt. They make a big moment of what's happened just prior to Moses. The Hyksos have come in and they've got chariots and they come in and just blast Egypt and just annihilate the whole lot of them and restart again as a, as a different way of life. And this has gone on for a hundred years. So Egypt, as it was, the old pharaohs, has been forgotten. But now there's a new guy who's come and he headed up a revolt from uh, over the, the Hyksos so that Egypt's back. This uh, king was Amhos I. And he, so he was a fearsome, he was a pioneer. So he's done it, he's wiped the slate clean and said, we are back. And he's done, if I could use it, a very coarse uh, allegory, he's done a Hitler. We are back. We're rising, and what, he, what Hitler called the Third Reich, these guys are now calling the New Kingdom. Mate, we are not only back, what happened to us before is never happening again. And so he took literally the world by the horns and said, I'm going to wrestle the whole darn lot to the ground. And this is the heart now behind who Egypt is. They're going, yes, sir, we're doing this. No one dared revolt, no one dared speak a word against Amos. It was his way or the highway, and, and they were set to conquer the whole known world as they knew it. This is where Moses was born. So this is Amos seeing that. So he was the king who knew nothing of Joseph. He didn't care less about any of that because we're building a whole new thing now. And so it's this unprecedented time. It's a high, the highest of high tide in Egyptian history is just about to take place. And the time between Moses being born, it's not like the movies. You know how it's like he grew up with Pharaoh and then he comes and visits Pharaoh again. 
Uh, it's actually six pharaohs have come and gone in that time. So no one even knows who, the history of Moses by the time he comes back and confronts Pharaoh. And so this is the guy that the text describes as the, the, to whom Joseph meant nothing. And he's paranoid about losing it all. Uh, and it's just as if, literally, uh, the Third Reich's now come to power. Can you imagine, for example, if uh, the Third Reich had won the Second World War? That's exactly what's happened here. They actually won the day. And now the whole world's about to be redefined by what they do. So right into this situation where everyone is in fear, everyone's in bondage, particularly the Israelites, and they're being locked down. There is no way known we're going to let you guys take over. So he gives the order then that every male child is to be drowned in the Nile. And this echoes then directly back to what happened in Jesus' day. When Jesus was born, he becomes, because Moses is a, is a shadow, a type, an illustration of Christ, and Herod does the same thing. And so Moses' mother wanted to save his life, so at three months old, he puts him in a, in a wicker basket and just casts him out on the Nile and sort of heads him towards uh, some ladies that are, that are bathing in the Nile or doing their clothes or something. So it ends up, one of these ladies was the princess, because Amhos, one of the reasons he was so fragile about an uprising was that he had no son. So he died sonless in the end. And so he was very, because what that does in kingdoms, when there's no son, there's no heir, this gets the king very, very fragile, and anything can happen. Political, uh, political plays come to pass and all this sort of stuff. It's all uh, suitable for uprising. So Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses and isn't quite sure what to do, but finds her maid servant, says, can you find one of the Hebrew mothers to look after? Anyway, and the, the girl that she's found is, is Moses' sister. Moses' sister goes, I know someone who can do it, fetches her mum. Hands in the CV, you'll do, fine. So family back together, great. So Moses is brought up in the court now with his own mother and his sister for 40 years in the household. But if you follow along in the story, this is where it gets really interesting for me. It's, it's what happens next because Moses is the deliverer. Moses is the person who's going to take them out of bondage. And yet it's almost like he's got too much to offer. It's like he's been born in the royal household and all this stuff, stuff going for him, sort of... Uh, default pedigree and such, but over the next 40 years, he, he triggers it through his own pride and his assumption that he's going to do it in his own strength. He murders an Egyptian, he gets caught out and he, and he ends up fleeing into the desert for another 40 years. So he's 40 when that happens and commentators say he spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, the next 40 years realising he's nobody and then the next 40 years wondering how God can do, make somebody out of nobody. It's like 120 years this story goes on. And so in this 40 years, he realises that his pedigree and his qualifications essentially are reset. So his good character can't be claimed. He can't go there and say, look, I'm the best guy in town because even the Israelites, the Hebrews know he, he killed, he's a murderer. His high status is erased because now he becomes a shepherd out in the wilderness. He's, he's, not, a, he's not a born speaker. He's got no, he, he stutters and he stammers apparently and, and uh, he's known as a man of slow, slow speech. Um, so he's just, he doesn't bring anything to the humanistic table. But this is what makes this story just so fantastic because this is the man that God has called. And I wonder whether you've had to grapple with this sometimes. We all have our moments. We all wonder, God, can you use me? It's okay for so-and-so, they've got the pedigree, or so-and-so, they've got the gifts. And yet you get this guy, Moses, who's essentially now 80 years old. He should be looking for his superannuation plan to cash it in. And there's nothing. And yet God calls him. And says, oh, by the way, recognise the wrinkles, but I want you to go and save a whole nation. 
And so he begins to argue with the whole thing. And you, you look at the process there through Exodus, and, and I'm hoping you're keeping up with the text, but uh, this, this confrontation he has with the burning bush and, and God, and this place where he meets God is called Horeb. And Horeb, it's the same as Mount Sinai, it's the same place, same word, and, and Horeb means fire, it's a place of calling, of, uh, of holy fire. So whenever you see Horeb mentioned, it's mentioned twice in Exodus, and then when Elijah is running away from God, he ends up at the same mountain and God calls him again. If you ever want to get a word from God, find Sinai, you know, this is where it all happens. And so God sort of talks to him and says, hey, where's your staff, Moses? He's going, what do you mean my staff? And the staff represents, it's on its engraved back in those days, all that your life had represented, all the notches on your belt are going on your staff, I'm this and I've done that. And, and he says, throw that thing to the ground, give it to me, throw it down before me because I really, I don't have any use for it, to be honest. I've got a job to do and you're only going to get in the way, so I just need you to be able to partner with me. And so you see this wonderful interaction where God just keeps trying to convince him that he's the person for the job. And I love Moses' reply. Now go, and I will, I'll, sorry, this is God speaking to Moses towards the end. Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said in the end, it's like a long dialogue, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. You want to tick God off? Just keep saying no. Nah. It's like, I'm too scared, I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm too unqualified, I'm the wrong gender, I'm wrong everything, it's just, no, God, anyone but me. And there's just something about that that really does seem to irritate our wonderful God. So a word of advice, it's a freebie today. Don't do that. <laughs> it won't go well for you, he will have his way. And so in the end, he goes anyway and does that. Uh, and he starts the whole process. And uh, it's just amazing when you begin to consider, if you just realise how big our God is and how much He can do with you. Because it's not up to you, it's up to Him. It's, it's not about how big you are, it's how big He is. And we just need to leave behind sometimes this, this idea that somehow I qualify. When I get to a certain point, then God can... I, I had a pleasure this week of sitting with a, just a wonderful guy, 80 plus years old in, in hospital and... And uh, just sharing stories, because we've, we've done a few miles together, you know, and we've seen some things. And, and, you, and it's just the stories of lives, uh, salvation, revival, healings, raised up so many people in, in his life. And, and, and uh, you could look to the qualifications, all I've ever done is just listen to what God says and do it. Moment by moment, I don't have any plans. I've never had any plans for my life. You know? Just I've never planned anything in my life. But I look at the, the resume of what he's accomplished in his years and tens of thousands of lives have changed. Yet the most humble of personalities. So I just listen and just say yes. I just keep doing what he says, moment to moment. I don't wait until next week when I've prayed it all through and I'm all ready and I've read the right books. I just say yes, this moment. And that will always normally just mean one person, the person they're with and so on. It's just incredible. And that's our life. That's the offer. The big things happen when we just abide and listen. So Moses' job, is that the proper, con can I say Moses's? It was a, Moses, Moses, Mosai, no, <laughs> Moses' job, Moses with an apostrophe there, uh, is to deliver. You've got to understand, because I, wanna, I just want to drill down here for a moment. When you go for a job, when you're looking for ministry, you're looking for God's calling in your life, we're normally looking for a position description, a pretty clear outline, KPIs, conditions. 
There's no position description here. There's no induction process. There's no glory. There's no recognition. No one's saying thanks. Far from it. There's no salary. There's no workplace health and safety. There's no training. There's no mentors. There's nothing. There's just pain, disruption, and fruit. <laughs> That's Christian calling. So if you want to get an idea of what it could look like when God's calling you to do something, think disruption. I won't, I won't emphasize pain, but it's going to be there because it'll take you out of your comfort zone. And fruitfulness. There'll be fruit because it's his fruit to bear. Who's up for that? All of us. But every seasoned leader will tell you in church world that it's, it's, it's all about, in the end, sacrifice. It's, like, it's character. It's, it's, it's not a job. Nothing that God gives us to do is a job. It's, it's an honor. It's an honor to lay down and do what really matters. And so this moment with Moses brings us to this, this space that defines the nation to this day, this deliverance. And, and obviously he goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, who's now six down the line, uh, wants none of it. So it's plague time. Not playtime. Plague time. And this is going to be now painful for everyone. But why is he doing it? Because God literally wants to draw a line. He says, Moses, my name is Yahweh. I am that I am. Well, what does that mean, God? Let me show you. And he takes on the whole ministerial cabinet of Egypt's idols. The whole lot. It's not just, oh, he, he wanted to keep ramping it up to get their attention. What he was doing was a very deliberate taking on of the pantheon of God's little g in, in Egypt, the whole lot of them, one by one. And if we look up on the, on the slide behind, you see these 10, uh, what they used to call gods, idols, we'll call them, uh, that were taken on. The first one, the turning the, the Nile to blood, was taking on Harpy. He was the god of the Nile. And for them, the Nile was, was the, the bloodstream of provision. And Osiris was, was said to have had the bloodstream of Osiris was the Nile, hence turning the Nile he was taken on saying, I'm going I'm to nail every one of these things one by one. The, fro the plague of frogs was directly against Haggit, the, the goddess of birth with a frog's head. The gnats was against their idol called Set, who was the god of the desert. The flies was against Uachit, who was represented by the fly. Uh, later became uh, called Beelzebub in the other cultures. The livestock was uh, Hathor, who had a cow's head, and Apis, the bull god. The boils was against Sekhmet, the goddess of disease, and Imhotep, the god of medicine, nailing two at once. Then there came the hail, and this was against Nut, the goddess of the sky, and Set, the god of storms. The locusts, and it just keeps ramping up in their, in their false deities. The locust was against Osiris. You may have heard about Osiris, the god of crops and fertility. Then the darkness comes against Re and Horus, the sun god. And then finally you get to the firstborn, is Isis. And everyone will have heard of the Egyptian god Isis, the goddess who protected children, especially Pharaoh's godchild. And you look at what God's doing there and say, I want to get your attention. I am who I am. I am greater. I'm greater than the whole pantheon there. What have I got to do to get your attention? And I still feel like some days he has to resonate. He has to do this with us, almost to shake us a little bit out of our quietness. Out of, our, out of our apathy and out of our border, says, hey, listen up, I'm Yahweh, I'm greater than every idol that you have. I want to confront them. And now and again in your life, he will come to you and he will confront the idols in our life and say, how about it? Am I God or am I not? The idols of self-provision, where I'm going to make the solution myself. I can, I can find my way out of this. I can determine a result. The idol of comfort that we always bow to before we make the hard decisions for God. 
The idol of fear, I can't do it because I'm afraid. The idol of materialism, the idol of sloth, the laziness, oh, I don't want to get out of bed today. The idols of addiction. And God just wants to come against them some days and go, hey, hey, listen up. <laughs> I am Yahweh. I not only created you, I not only created this city and this nation, I created the earth, I hold it in my hand, I created the whole solar system. Zoom out. Look at this thing. It's in the palm of my hand. Look at this galaxy, the Milky Way, with billions of those stars and solar system. And then how many hundreds of billions of galaxies are out there? And I hold them all still in that same hand. I am who I am. I am Yahweh. Don't come to me and expect I'm going to compete with laziness or comfort or your fears. There's no war going on between God and any of that. He's so far beyond the whole lot. And he says, how about we just remember who's God here? Don't come to me with a list of demands and a job description and all the stuff you want. I am God. And sometimes we just need to humble ourselves and remember, flip. Gee, I come to him with a list sometimes. Sometimes I bring this Western entitlement and go, God, how about it? Why haven't you done this for me? If you do that, I'll follow you. I need to remember who's God. And so we come to this whole idea of the firstborn. And this is the moment that the Hebrews would remember to this day the firstborn. It defines who we are as Christian believers. It's a sign of more to come, that this last plague was to be God's final call. It was his final say. It was a sign of what was to come in our lives, that, that del for deliverance to happen, for a nation to be freed, for you and I to be freed, a firstborn must pay the price of redemption. And so he's flagging right back then before there was any idea of who Jesus was, that a lamb must pay a price. And he said to the Hebrews, so what you need to do, I'm going to send this angel, the firstborn are all going to die. I need you to put the blood of the lamb over your doorpost and the angel of death will come by and pass over you. And so here's where we get the whole Passover celebration. Because the firstborn represented lineage and first fruits and the best and, and the perfect sacrifice. So this became the first Passover. And obviously if you know your New Testament history, you'll understand Jesus died at Passover. Jesus, the lamb of God, at the very moment uh, that this would have been spread over the doorpost. Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished. I am the lamb. And so this firstborn, this pointer to Christ, happens right here in what is the most disrupted moment in human history. So in the end, Pharaoh relents. He's lost his son. His, his economy is in ruins. And uh, he says, out you go. And they take some of their possessions. He finally, he backtracks in the end. And, and we, we know the story of the Red Sea where they're going out and they're all lost. He could have taken them one way, but God wanted to do it down the hard road and just show them how strong he really is. And so let's do it. Let's show them really who's boss. And there's a pillar of cloud and fire and leads them to the shores. And the, the Hebrews, full of faith, go, let's kill Moses and head back to Egypt. You know. And we see this Red Sea moment. And this is where each of us have gone through our Red Sea moment. The Apostle Paul calls it your baptism. It's your moment where you're cut off. And he said, this is a pivotal moment now because now freedom is offered. Are you in? And we all say, amen, we're in. Let's go through the Red Sea now. Let's cut Egypt off so it can't come back. And, we've, and we're, then we go out through our Red Sea, through our baptism. And we realize I've made this decision for Christ and there's no turning back now. Even if I wanted to go back to my old life, all that stuff that I miss, it's not there anymore. The pathway's been cut off from me. And it's, a, it's a, an interesting moment for us. It's like, I don't know what's coming. I know what's past and I know I can't get it anymore. And it's called liminality. It's like, I'm not sure where, I was here and I'm going there, but I'm not there yet. And it's like, which space am I in? The past is no longer valid, neither is the future. 
I'm supposed to be coming to the promised land, but I'm not there yet. But what gets me about this whole moment, and I wonder whether it's confused you over the years. I first read this as a, as a new believer, and the story that followed after the Red Sea. And I look at what God did. He, he struck the stone with the, with the staff, and out comes water. He brings manna. He does all this amazing stuff, and yet these guys seem to be defined by something other than thankfulness. They, they, they sang a quick song when they got to the beach on the other side, but then it changed tune. The song sort of changed, and, and something happened, and it can easily happen in each of us too, and, and the Bible calls it uh, grumbling. <laughs> There's no other way. It's, it's like, a, if I was more discreet, I'd say they, they, their thankfulness dial got turned down. Something happened in these guys where they... they they were out of Egypt, but Egypt wasn't out of them. Because you can't find freedom if bondage is still inside of you, can you? You can, you can completely change your circumstance. You can find a new church, find a new job, find a new whatever in life. But if you're still there, it starts looking much the same. And so now Egypt is just pouring out of their soul and, and they begin to just grumble. And they're stuck in this place between one life and the next. And it's just so sad that their story became a story of grumbling and doubt. But they were Israel in the greatest sense of the word, Israel, which means to struggle with God. And they just struggled. Do you know that struggle? Is that, is that your life? I think, mate, how about all this list of things that you haven't done yet, God? And we get stuck. And we're not sure what to do because we have these different modes in our lives. And, and one mode is the, is the under pressure mode, like in Egypt. And, and we cry out to God, God, deliver me. This situation's really hard. And, and so we go into deliverance mode. Father, will you just get me out of this situation? But if we're not in that situation, we seem to default like these guys uh, into a place where we forget. So quickly we just forget because life gets busy again and things are going our way. So our mind isn't on all our troubles. And so we forget and we get apathetic and, and we come to church one in three where we used to be twice a Sunday and and we, we don't have a quiet time now because, well, I've got to get to work and I need my third coffee. And, and there, we have a different routine begins to happen because we forget. And so Jesus gave us symbols like the communion and baptism and, and gathering together on Sundays to help us to remember because our minds somehow forget. And when we forget, we begin to grumble. And all we have to say to God is what, what he hasn't done for us yet and how hard our life is. But he invites us as he invited these guys into this third place where I'm not crying out and I'm not forgetting but it's a spirit that I feel here most Sundays it's just this beautiful where God's people come for no other reason but to remember and be thankful and just stand here and just go I can't believe it I don't know whether it's a sign of because I've seen far too many sunrises but my, my sunrises now every single one I seem to be able to I just get up and go I I can't believe I've got an opportunity to do it all again. I get to be with him again. It's been 58 years of this and you've hung in with me all this time and you're letting me have another go? I'm so thankful. You know, I'm thankful for all the good things you've done but I can't get over the fact that he just allows me to breathe again, to, to be fruitful again, to love you guys again or whatever our role is in life. We get to live for the kingdom again today. Do you ever remember that? And just be thankful. I'm alive. So many people haven't got anything like what we've got. And so you resonate with Psalm 100. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him who praises his name. For the God is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues for all generations. 
And I love the picture of this because it says we enter his gates, so we come into his presence. I open the gate with thanksgiving because he's enthroned on the praises of his people. There's something about aligning ourselves with the reality of the way heaven sees things that opens that gate. And so I begin just with thanksgiving. And, and thanksgiving is as simple as remembering the works of God. It's like, thank God I'm alive. Thank God I can breathe. Thank God for my health and my family and, and the opportunities. Um, you thank God for what he's done. And it's, it's great, but it's a surface level. All that does is open the, the, the door. It's like pulling on a cord into his presence. And we go from thanksgiving for his works and I enter his courts with praise. And praise is not about what he's done. It's about who he is. Now I'm praising who you are. And this is a higher level of thanksgiving. It's like, God, thanks for all that stuff. That's awesome, but not as awesome as you. And this invitation comes into us to worship God, into his presence, and we sort of pull this cord of, of, of thanksgiving into praise. And we just sit there. How long has it been since you've just sat there and just worship God for who he is? And then in the New Testament, we go even deeper again because now, now it's, a, it's a sacrifice of praise. Now it's a sacrifice, it's a spiritual sacrifice, it's our hearts. And Romans 12, 2, we lay our whole bodies as living sacrifices. We get to give our whole selves just in worship. That every breath we take is for him, everything we do is for him, just because of who he is. A life of thankfulness. And so what he did in the, in the wilderness, he, he, he gave three really significant feasts and he said, I want you to do this every year. I wonder if you know what those feasts are. It was Passover, which remembered the lamb. Then there was Pentecost, which celebrated initially the law, but it, for us, celebrates the spirit. And then there was Tabernacles, which is the, the long-forgotten one. So these three were interspersed through the year. Tabernacles was where they used to build a thing like the size of a portaloo, made of sticks, and they would sit in this portaloo with no roof on it, and they would watch the sky. And, and that would remind them of this moment in the desert where God guided by pillar and by fire. And they were just to remember this presence, this guiding presence in our life. And so these are the things he said, I need you to be thankful and remember these three things because they'll become the guiding direction in your life. Passover reminds us of this freedom that our hearts yearn for. We've got to remember this all the time, what he's done for us, because it's, bought, it's purchased your freedom. Pentecost reminds us of this relationship that we have with the Spirit and this purpose that we have is through tabernacles where we follow Him through our life. And I need you to remember these three things, otherwise you're going to go off course and you're going to forget. So my prayer is today, it's really simple today, it's just as we, we just pull out the Scripture, is just to be thankful. Just to let our hearts just stop for a moment and cease worrying about all that's happened. And remember, I've been cut off, that life's gone now. I've made the big call, it's out. And I'm not into the perfection of life yet, but in this moment, in this tension, in this time of my life when I haven't hit everything just right, now I get the honour of worshipping by faith while it's all still messed up and being thankful in the midst of that, finding peace in the storm, knowing a life where fear doesn't govern me, comfort doesn't govern me, laziness and preference doesn't follow me. I can make a move and I can come here and I can worship and then I can do it tomorrow and the next day and be thankful and something unlocks in your spirit I tell you this is anecdotal evidence is, is beyond measure that something happens in your life when it's defined by thankfulness it opens every single breakthrough I've had in my life into any sort of upgrade you can imagine every single one of them has been preceded by a breakthrough of thankfulness and worship there's something happens in our hearts that prepares us for the upgrade that God has for each of us 
but you've got, you don't give thankfulness because you want an upgrade. You give thankfulness because of who he is. But it pulls you into his courts. It aligns you with his presence and his will and you become and we're transformed by beholding his glory. Let's pray and stand together. Let's stand in his presence now in honour of this God who saved us. Father, let's just be silent. How about I just be silent and just be thankful. Just think through in your mind what you have to be thankful for. from this room thankfulness and praise we thank you for who you are Father we thank you for all that you've done we thank you for your mighty works why don't you join me why don't we all just speak out don't listen to anyone else let's just speak it directly to the heavens thank him for all that he's done Lord we bless your nature we bless your goodness we bless the fact Father that you never give up on us you never stop you never say no to one who seeks your salvation we thank you for your awesome nature. We thank you that you are love. We thank you, Lord, for all that you are, all that you've done. And thank you that we get a moment just together in this place to recognize that and know that, Father, you are enthroned in the praises of your people. You are here. You're not being driven by ego. You don't need our praise. We need to praise. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. He is your deliverer. He is your hope. Let's worship together. If you need some prayer, come on over to the right, uh, my right, your left, after the service.